Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models episode 246. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today I'm happy to be joined by Alexander Darwin. Alex, how's it going? It's going well. Thanks for having me, Steve. Glad to have you, man. Uh, You came onto my radar recently when I saw some social posts promoting your new book. But for those who don't know you, why don't you introduce yourself and what you've been working on? Yeah, so uh, as you said, my name is Alex Darwin. Um, I'm an author uh, primarily. Um, I, I currently have a science fiction book out called The Combat Codes, but the tie-in to BJJ is I am a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt, trained since about 2004, and so as often happens, um, uh, our our Jiu-Jitsu bleeds into either our hobbies or professions, and that's the case with The Combat Codes where it has quite a bit of jujitsu and MMA in it. And that's actually the theme of, of the world. It's a world where um, single combat between champions has replaced wars. Um, and, you know, again, even in, in other things I've done, um, jujitsu has been a big part of it. A part, you know, um, it, it definitely bleeds into your life. It sure does. I always say on the podcast, after you've been training this thing for a few months, you're going to put BJJ at the end of your Instagram handle, and you're going to replace all of your t-shirts with tatami shirts, and you're going <laughs> to, it's going to be the first thing you talk about whenever someone tells you to talk about yourself. You know, it, it is very interesting how jujitsu just becomes a kind of an all-encompassing part of your life really, really fast. Yeah. I actually warn my my white and blue belts about what I call that honeymoon phase with jujitsu because you can often really um, annoy your significant other and or friends that are not a part of the jujitsu sphere. And uh, that that does often happen, but it's something to look out for. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because, I mean, love has its ups and downs and infatuation with jujitsu is no different. I think when we talk about the blue belt blues, a big part of that is because people just get so obsessed with jujitsu out of the gate. And then that passion and that infatuation wanes a bit and people just can't deal with it. So I, I think that for a lot of people, they, they need to understand you're probably not going to be as obsessed about this forever. A big part of staying the course with jujitsu is accepting that and getting to the point where you can have kind of a more healthy long-term relationship with jujitsu that isn't so obsessive. Yeah, no, I think that is really important because especially for, um, those practitioners who have done it for quite a while, um, myself, I'm closing in on 20 years. I've definitely had my ups and downs and we all have uh, those injuries uh, of varying degrees and we have to be off the mats and we have life and, you know, kids and work and whatever else. And it, it, if jujitsu ends up becoming a chore 
or a stress um, for you, the chance that you stick with it are going to be is going to be far far less. Um, so, I've always tried to teach my students in a way that uh, that looks the long term, and you know, it's different for everyone. It's if you're a professional, if you're a competitor, you might have a different outlook. Something we've talked about here on the podcast many times is making sure that you're always having fun while you're doing jujitsu, because really the thing that matters with any endeavor like jujitsu, if you want to get better at something is consistency. You can have the best training practices in the world and the best coach and the best training partners. But if you're not able to remain consistent, you're not going to get very far at the end of the day. And the most important thing when it comes to consistency, it's not drive or willpower or motivation. It's fun. It has to stay fun. And if you're getting miserable doing jujitsu, it's just not likely that you're going to hang around it too long. Right. I mean, there, uh, you know, we, we talk about this a lot in my circles of, of jujitsu training partners and students and friends in that, you know, you can replace jujitsu with other things. It's not entirely, and we can talk a little bit later. And that's one of the subjects of, of what really makes Brazilian jiu-jitsu completely unique, but there are a lot of other things like it. And we've, you know, as far as getting exercise, creating a, a um, social group, things that are fun, there are many other activities and hobbies that, that could potentially replace jiu-jitsu. And end of the day, if you're not having fun with jiu-jitsu, if it's becoming a stress for you for whatever reason, because of the competitive nature or because of having to drive two or three hours or because of the schedule or something totally external to, to it uh, that's going on in your life, then uh, you might you might bounce off and, and that's okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, hey, this is as good an opportunity as any to introduce the topic here. We talked about keeping it playful as a topic of discussion on this episode. It's a phrase you're going to hear a lot in jujitsu. <laughs> First came onto my radar. I think it was um, one of the Gracies. I think it was Henner who was talking about the importance. Yeah, Henner. Henner. Yeah, he, he's a big proponent of this idea of keeping it playful. You'll hear a lot of people say that, but that can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. And I would want to hear you unpack what it means to you. Why is it important in jujitsu, ultimately a combat sport, to keep it playful? And what does that mean to you at the end of the day? No, that's a fantastic question. I'm super excited to talk talk about this topic, and we can. I'm sure we're gonna go down a lot of different roads because there's a lot of connecting. There's a lot of connecting. I don't want to say data points, but kind of um, similar phrases to keeping it playful. And I know Henner was the one who started saying keeping it playful. And you know, as as those guys do, um, it, it it's kind of like a marketing phrase almost, uh, which is great. I mean, they really help promote uh, the art, but at the same time, I think it's kind of gotten lost about what that actually means. And also something that I often have to talk to students about is how difficult it can be to keep it playful. Because you, you hear the word playful and you think, wow, that should be easy. That should be something that comes naturally. And in fact, the mindset as well as skill that it may require to be playful is, is often overlooked. So I, I definitely want to talk about that. But you know, one thing that I was really interested in is what it means to be playful in a grappling setting. And I had actually gone, as us, as jujitsu folks tend to do, I really went down the rabbit hole in looking at this because I was so interested in it. And, and in my own experience, I, I, as I said, I've had ups and downs in this jujitsu journey. I've had times where I didn't want to continue. I've had times where I'm stressed and, and I've had periods where I didn't train for, for whatever reason, because of injury or because it was just on the back burner. 
Um, and I was trying to compare, you know, the times when I really was enjoying learning and when I was actually learning the best and I, when I was like a sponge and I, the, the only common theme that would come up is, is exactly what you said, Steve, is having fun. Um, when I found that I was playing and having fun, I would not only learn easier, whatever technique or sequence I was trying to learn would, would come a lot easier, but I would also have a lot more of a consistent schedule, as you said. Yeah, yeah, I can definitely relate to that. For me, the probably when I had the most fun at jujitsu was when I was a white belt. And honestly, it was probably because I just kept it playful. When when you're a white belt, once you get past that initial fear of what is this thing I'm doing, you know, <laughs> what what are these crazy people going to do to me when I go onto the mats? Once you get past that, it's just such a time of joy and discovery because everything is new. You're learning something every day. You're developing skill at a rate faster than you probably ever will on the mats from that point on. You know, that white to blue journey is probably the biggest single leap of skill of any belt just because you're going from zero to one. Um, You're meeting new people. It's just all very exciting. And a a big part of it was just I was having a lot more fun. Things were playful. As you get older in jujitsu, you know, especially at black belt, man, you know, you're kind of looked at as this coach and mentor and people come to you with their problems (laughs) You know, and yes, I want to help them solve them, but it's a very different relationship. There's more responsibility than when you're a white belt and you can just have fun. Um, And a big part of what I try to do now is I try to get back to that mindset of just keeping it playful all the time and making sure that no matter what happens, this is a fun experience for me. Better, more important than performance, more important than even learning. I need it to be fun. A hundred percent. And I try to exemplify that with my own behavior uh, when I'm rolling with students or when I know that students are watching me roll. Um, And it is hard, especially as a black belt, uh, especially as someone um, that people on the mats will will look up to. I think there is kind of a weight on your shoulders, especially if you own your own school or or if you're a teacher, um, depending on who you are training with, there can be um, pressure to, to perform, to maybe dominate or that sort of thing. And and that, again, I, I find that mindset not only is not fun for me, um, but I, I don't learn, even now I'm, I'm constantly trying to learn as a black belt. There's just so much out there. It's amazing. Um, from, you know, shows like your own or YouTube or, or anywhere, there's just so much to learn and, and everything's so interesting. But, but I find I'm really, I'm like a sponge when, when I'm playing. And I try to exemplify that um, on the mats. It's almost like when you were a kid, tapping into that like childlike mindset of when you you know when you started something new and it was just so cool and all you wanted to do was learn everything about it whether it's like a book or a video game or a sport you know that feeling that you had when I was a kid I feel like as adults we don't really encounter that very often and I feel like Brazilian jiu-jitsu is one of the few places that I often see both in myself as well as students that you know, childlike fascination kind of come back. And I, that's why, why I think so many people get addicted to it and why people, as we said, have those white belt and blue belt honeymoon years where all they can do is talk about jujitsu. I think that's what it is. It's like they're tapping into that, that fun center that is not normal for adults. And it's almost like frowned upon for adults. Like why, like my kids, when I go, when I go uh, to train, like they've just gotten the habit of saying like, oh, you're going to play with your friends. And at first I was like, like you have a play date with your friends. I'm like, 
Yeah, I guess I guess that's it. that is what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It it is funny in a lot of ways. Jujitsu is the social outlet for a lot of grownups. I can't speak for everyone out there, but for you know, for myself, if not for jujitsu, my entire life would just be work and home, work and home. Right. Jujitsu for me is that third place that gives me an opportunity to escape all of that, to have a bit of a reset, to connect with people and and meet people that I normally wouldn't have a chance to meet, right? I mean, this is one of actually my favorite things about jujitsu is it gives you the opportunity to cross into social circles that you normally wouldn't deal with. Um, I work in in software. When I go to the job, I'm probably going to just be talking to other people who are extremely similar to me. When I'm with my family, I'm with the people that I'm spending my entire lives with. But when I go to jujitsu, I have no idea who's going to walk in that door. There's going to be people from all walks of life, incredible diversity that you'll find in a jujitsu gym. Um, something that I I found is, you know, when whenever I do have to take time off of jujitsu, it kind of sucks because life gets a lot less interesting because I just don't have that variety of so of a social network anymore that I used to have when I was on the mats. Oh man, you're so right. And I love how you use the uh, terminology third place. And I've heard that before. I don't know if it's like, a specific term uh, that's used in the social sciences, but I, I have heard it, especially in 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 specific in relation to um, men and how it's often difficult for men after they start a family to find a third place, uh, which can be something outside of your family and your work. And I think that the reason that it's specific to men in this whatever whoever is this is not me saying this, this is whatever I read is that men just have a harder time making social contact. They're just less likely to put themselves outside of that, those initial two and either rediscover friends that they once had from, you know, uh, high school or university or whatever. They're more likely to just keep to the home and work. And so, um, and oftentimes, unfortunately, the third place could be like a bar or some negative reinforcing behavior. Um, but uh, for for us, um, as you said, the jujitsu and and your club or gym is your third place, and I think that's really positive. And in fact, I think that's why it often does attract um, people of all all walks, um, including you know celebrities, all the celebrities that have been in the news recently. Like I know we see Tom Hardy a lot, and which is awesome, by the way. I'm, it's like whenever people are like trying to knock on celebrities doing jujitsu in whatever way, it could be privates, it could be do it, go into tournaments uh, like Tom Hardy or Anthony Bourdain did. Um, it's like the fact that they're actually getting out there is a lot. It's like why that's their thing, first of all, and that's what they're doing to improve their life or have fun or, or play um, or maybe train for a movie or some sort. So why why knock it? That's always bothered me. It's like, why <laughs> why why try to knock that down? Um, like, for example, Anthony Bourdain, I, I was privileged to be able to write a piece on him uh in rolling stone magazine about um his jujitsu journey and interview a bunch of people from uh his training partners and and family and it, it was really just showed that how important um having that third place was for him especially someone as wildly famous at that point having being able to like knock himself down a peg and go into a jujitsu gym you know and across the world going to like Okinawa or in, in like uh, the Middle East or in the US, wherever he went, he would try to find jujitsu gym and just blend in. Of course, he couldn't blend in, but as much as possible. And that just shows just what you were talking about is you'll f- really find people of all walks of life. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's one of the things I, I do love about it. I agree with you, too, about the hate of celebrities coming into our sport. I don't get it. I mean, look, if if Joe Rogan had never started promoting Brazilian jiu-jitsu, would any of us even be here training it? You know, the, the fact that celebrities promote this, it's the best marketing that we can imagine. People are also, and I want to talk about this, too, in the context of keeping it playful, People in jiu-jitsu are so judgy all the time. I remember when that footage of Ashton Kutcher rolling came out and everyone just got on the bandwagon about, oh, this guy's jiu-jitsu is garbage. Well, yeah, it's like... He, this guy, <laughs> he's just a dude. He's not trying to be like an ADCC world champion. He's right. just the same as you or me. He's just a guy who wants to learn jiu-jitsu and gets a, get a little bit better, right? I mean... His goal isn't to go and like consistently beat Craig Jones in competition. He's just trying to get a little bit better. I, I think this is actually a pattern I've noticed in jiu-jitsu that or it worries me a little bit. There is this obsession with what's going on at the highest levels of jiu-jitsu. And to some extent, that's absolutely understandable, right? You want to study from the best. You want to learn from the best. If you want to be data-driven, you want to learn the techniques that are being used at the highest level. But I would say the counter to that is you're not at the highest level right? You're, you're just a guy or a girl who's training jujitsu and is using this for some degree of personal development. There is maybe a 1% chance if you're listening to this podcast that you are a pro jujitsu competitor. That, that is pretty rare. Most people are using jujitsu as a vehicle for growth. And so I, I think that although it's important to study and follow what is being done by the best and to keep a data-driven approach, it's also important to keep an open mind and make sure that you're still having fun and to keep that playful element of jujitsu and explore what's going on and not beat yourself up like crazy just because you can't tap everyone in the gym, right? This, for, for a lot of people, and in fact, for the vast majority of people, they're not training jujitsu because they want to compete at the highest level. They're training jujitsu because they want to defend themselves from a drug addict on the street or they want to get in shape or they want to build confidence or they want to just generally improve the quality of their life. Um, and I see a lot of people who just they should be happy with their jujitsu progress, but they're miserable because they're comparing themselves to whatever they're seeing at the highest level and they're not there. And I think when you do that, you lose that playful aspect of jujitsu and you make it a lot less fun for yourself. And ultimately, if it's not fun, it doesn't matter how good you are. You're not going to stay around. A hundred percent. And to be honest, even professionals whether in the jiu-jitsu sphere or the mixed martial arts sphere or really any any athletes or, or any skill set that you can uh, become a professional in, uh, you see burnout. Burnout is a big deal. Like athletes that burn out. And I think I've heard over and over in interviews and from talking to, to athletes, knowing that one common theme of burnout, obviously there's a lot of variables in play there, but one common theme is is just not enjoying it anymore, not losing that initial spark. And how many times have we seen that? And I actually see uh, having uh, being an author, I see a lot of parallels there uh, where, you know, writing has been always something I've done. And I, obviously, I love it enough to make it a career. But when, you know, everything about the industry and, and publishing and comparing myself to this bestseller, that bestseller, this author and that author, that is all just toxic and makes me worse, makes me less of a writer. And I know it's the same for jujitsu. And I fall, we all fall into the traps. Like we will all have those moments where we're in the gym and you, you think your, you think your skill level is, is at a certain, certain level. And, and then you have 
someone come in and they knock you down a peg and, and you feel bad about yourself. And that's okay. That's just part of it because, you know, we're, at the end of the day, we're grappling and there is some element of, you know, physical dominance and, and, but that's okay. As long as you're able to take that in stride or, and at least build a learning mindset from it. Now, if we wanted to make this actionable, and I think it's important to do that because this is a problem that almost every grappler is going to have at some point. They're going to drift away from the playful aspect of it, and it's going to impact their enjoyment of the sport. Everyone's going to have this at some point. What advice can we give those people to help them keep it playful so that they can maintain their enjoyment over the long term? If you're a grappler of really any level and you just want to keep your enjoyment of this thing going, what kind of actionable steps can you take to help keep it playful on the mats? Yeah, no. So I've definitely, I haven't done this in, in such a systematic manner as I know you would, Steve. Um, I, I'm, I am not quite the data-driven person you are, but I, I think just over time, given the fact that keeping it playful is something that I've realized is what keeps me on the mats and what allows me to have fun, I've just been making mental notes of what the variables are that enable this sort of behavior. Now, I would think one, I think one key variable is unfortunately somewhat out of your personal control in that your training partner really matters. But it's, you know, training partners matter for so many reasons. And it's almost my number one response when I have uh, friends or students or training partners that, that are, are in a bit of a dip and are, are down on their games or down on themselves. And I really do think um, good training partners make a massive difference. And as far as being able to keep it playful, if you are trying to keep it playful, but your your training partner does not have that mindset, then you are going to be, it will be almost, it, I mean, you'll be able to kind of do it, but it will be almost impossible. It really takes two to tango, as they say. And now I'm not just, I want to make a little asterisk here and say that there are times when keeping it playful will not necessarily um, sync with what your goals are. For example, if you're a competitor and you're, you know, leading up to your matches, to your fight, whatever it might be, keeping it playful probably is not going to be a mindset that is very conducive for what your goals are. Because the factors that go into competition um, don't line up with, with that mindset. It, with competition, you really need to focus on your A game or your B game. And you're really not trying to give up any space. You're trying to dominate. And Keeping it playful re really requires a mindset, as I said, going back to having a good training partner, a little bit of give and take. And it often can be confused with, you know, flow. Um, how do, you know, a lot of, you'll hear a lot of instructors say, why don't you guys flow roll? That's another term I see thrown around a lot. And unfortunately, if you don't have the skill set to flow roll, you won't be able to do it. So it can often confuse students and they won't know how to flow roll. Yeah. Yeah. Makes a ton of sense to me. And I agree with you. Of course, there is a, there is a time and a place for playfulness. Um, if you're actually in the middle of a competition, that's not the time to be joking around and goofing around, right? You're there to get a job done. I would say though, that the need to keep it playful as an overarching philosophy remains critically important, even for a top level competitor, but you just need the ability to turn that switch on and off. Now, this is something we've talked on the podcast before with uh, Joseph Chen and a bunch of other people who have talked about when it's time to have a growth mindset versus when it's time to have a performance mindset. And these things can be very different. When you're in the gym 
You want to be having fun. You want to be willing to experiment, to try new things, to look bad because you're going outside of your comfort zone, right? But when you're stepping onto the competition mats, you want to focus rigidly on your A game, on the things that you know that you're good at um, and focusing on the things that are going to give you the highest percentage chance of success. You really don't want to be doing your experimentation in the middle of a competition. That said, though, I still think that keeping it playful is a key element of competitive strategy over the long term, because even though it's not something that you want to be doing in a match, you need to be able to flip that light switch on and off in your brain so that you can go back into playful mode right afterwards. A thing that a lot of athletes do is they just can't turn off that competitive drive. And as a result, they're always miserable. They're always miserable. And the problem with that is if you're miserable, you're going to burn out. It's going to ultimately impact your performance. So you need to be able to flip that switch in your mind and know when it's time to go into growth mode and keep it playful in the gym. Know when it's time to go into performance mode and focus on the A game. But you've also got to be able to switch back to fun mode afterwards. Mm. And that's something that a lot of people on our podcast have talked about. Um, A person who speaks very well about this is Nick Perler, the uh, head of the Perler Wrestling Academy in the States. He talks a lot about the importance of having a long-term perspective and making sure that you're having fun in competition. Mm-hmm. You should be you should be happy that you're getting that opportunity to go out there. If you're just getting inside your own head, not only is it going to impact your performance in the moment, it's going to impact your performance in the long term because you're going to burn out. Yeah, no, 100%. And actually, one thing that really helped me, I mean, I know we talked about training partners, uh, that, that being such an important factor in being able to find training partners that share that that same attitude. And I agree with you 100% being able to flip that switch um, between go time and then going back to being playful. And as you said, going back to learning mode, because I do think, and I think it makes sense that even high level competitors, because I think I've heard like GSP talk about this, is you know the percentage time when he's in learning mode. And during that time, he's willing to experiment. He's willing to lose. He's willing to take more risks And really, in the end, I think that's another way of saying he's willing to be playful. And then there's a percentage time that he's training when he's leading up to competition, obviously when he's in competition, when he's, that's not the case and he flips the switch, but he is easily able to go back and forth between that, those two modes. But something for me that really helped, um, solidify why I wanted, I would find that I'm learning better when I'm playful. I obviously find, would find that I'm being more consistent with my training when I'm playful, but I didn't quite know why. So I did a bunch of, you know, research and I found that there with mammals, there are a lot of studies out there on play because of course, play is something that is unique to mammals. Of course, you know, there's other kingdoms of animals that have play like behaviors, but the way that mammals play is very specific. And we've seen it in how many videos of like Joe Rogan showing a video of bears uh, fighting or of, uh, you know, uh, monkeys or apes wrestling. There, there's countless videos, uh, cats um, doing back takes of mammals doing things that, that us grapplers look at and we laugh and chuckle and say, wow, it's just like as if. But guess what? It is. The way that mammals play uh, is very logical in that they don't necessarily want to grievously injure one another during these play fights for obvious reasons. That's going to prevent them from, you know, reproducing and, and carrying on their their genetic line, and that that is evolution for you. So, it, you know, if play were a deleterious um, behavior, something that harmed their uh, a mammal's ability to 
to reproduce, it would be, you know, selected out in that all the, the animals that were playing and injuring themselves too bad would not be able to carry on their, their genetic line. So uh, there were a lot of studies that were asking that very question of saying, well, um, so what is the evolutionary reason for play? And so there were a bunch of theories that came out and two of the, two of the ones that they looked into um, that were, were theories were, well, one, is it preparation for the real world, for combat in specific? And two, is it something that's more of a social bonding? And they did a lot of tests. And I know the testing for the, these was, was hard. It wasn't perfect. And there's a bunch of studies. But they've basically found that those two, there was no correlation between either, you know, uh, mammals. And they, they studied this across, you know, a lot of different mammals from, from bears to meerkats to tigers to great apes uh, like chimpanzees um, or orangutans. And they found there was no correlation between preparing for combat or social bonding and those animals that played more. So they would essentially get a group of, of young mammals and, and watched how often they played and then tried to tie that to, okay, so then those, that um, meerkat that went on into a real physical confrontation that actually mattered, did it help him or her succeed? And the answer was no. And the same went, did it help them create social bonds after they played more? And the answer was no. That kind of left a lot of researchers, you know, scratching their heads and saying, so why, why is this a behavior we see so frequently in mammals? It's just something that comes so naturally to young mammals as they grow up. They're, they're, they're in this grapple, they're in grappling matches um, with each other. And the one that seemed to stick the best was specifically in rats. I hadn't known it, but rats are very playful. Um, you know, two, you get two rats and in, in, uh, they will uh, grapple with each other. They will play. And they essentially found that the rats that were not playing, that they, they deprived of play, very quickly had a massive spike in stress hormone, cortisol. And that led to what's called like rat rage, scarper. Um, essentially, they got super stressed out when they couldn't play. And when they could play, they were they were essentially depressing that stress hormone, um, and I I think this is so logical to me because I I can attest that you know when I when I stop uh, doing grappling I I definitely get very grumpy. My wife will even say go go to jujitsu. You're you're not being like yourself right now, and I think that's the case. And um, I think uh, what I read in in that study is that play is essentially or grappling in this in this specific case with with a lot of mammals is exciting the flight or fight neurochemistry in your brain like that same flight or fight that would be activated in in a real flight or fight um situation and and it's this it's the same neurochemical pathway as as that stress and so by constantly conjuring up this neurochemical pathway this flight or fight behavior it it essentially inoculates you to the real stress response and it's able to depress um, cortisol. So that, I thought that was so interesting. And so it, it kind of like gave me some background for why I was really, when I'm playing, as opposed to, you know, stressing about my jujitsu, it really made a big difference in me, you know, coming, wanting to come in. Now, here's the interesting thing. A lot of people find it very hard not to stress about their jujitsu. And I get it. Jiu-jitsu is one of, and I've said this on the podcast before, it's one of the only activities that most of us will ever do in our lives where we get immediate, very specific feedback about what happened and what went wrong. If you mess up in jiu-jitsu or if your training partner is just better than you, 
there is going to be no doubt in your mind that they beat you, right? There's no doubt. Yeah. Whereas in other walks of life, things are more ambiguous. If I'm, you know, if I'm being unpleasant to deal with at work, it's unlikely that someone is going to stop me right in the moment and say, Steve, you're being a jerk. I might not find out until my performance review six months later. I might never find out. I might walk through my whole life being a jerk and annoying the people around me and no one ever tells me. So we're not really used to getting that timely, immediate feedback. And that's one of the beautiful things about jujitsu because timely, immediate feedback is the best type of feedback, but it also is very hard on the ego. And I think one of the things that makes a lot of people suffer needlessly in jujitsu is they struggle with that kind of feedback that they're getting on the mats. They're constantly getting tapped out or maybe they're not constantly getting tapped out, but they're just getting tapped out more than they want to be. And it's very easy to beat yourself up about that, right? Uh, Ultimately, when you're in there training with someone, if you are viewing this as a measuring stick of worth, then if other people are beating you, it's going to just wreck your ego. And they will say things like jujitsu kills the ego. Well, it maybe for some people it does, but not for everyone. Some people just remain miserable because they get no progress. They just can't win. Um, This is a very common problem that smaller people have because they get dummied around by bigger people all the time and they just, they really struggle with that mentally. What advice do you have for those people who are really struggling with their performance on the mat? I mean, you and I know as old gray hairs who have been training this for a while, (laughs) that getting tapped out is a good thing because that means that you are testing yourself against better opposition and that's your best opportunity to learn. We know that as people who have been doing this for a while. But if you're a white or a blue or even a purple belt, it can be very stressful if you're putting all of this time in and you're getting absolutely nothing out of it, at least not imminently. You're not getting the victories that you want. How do you help those people reestablish that playful mindset? Yeah, and I'm 100% in concordance with you, Steve. That mindset definitely leads to stress, uh, whether on the mat or when you're home, um, you know, licking your wounds and kind of ruminating about the the matches letting those matches play through your head we've all had that i mean i remember that just thinking you can't go to sleep at night because you're playing that one time you got tapped out over and over and so that's certainly something that's normal first of all and it can often happen and even if you feel like you've beaten that and you've quote unquote you know lost that part of your ego which is something we hear a lot it can always come back. You can always, you can, that can always come back. So first, don't be too hard on yourself if that's what's occurring. Now, as far as a way to combat um, that mindset, I think I, I definitely would come back to trying to train more with partners that are going to be playful. Um, and again, let's talk about a little bit about what that means. Because again, there's certain partners, if you're, if you're going up against that guy in the gym, um, let's say you're a smaller guy. And you're going against that 225 pound, uh, nothing against wrestlers, but like a newer wrestler who's just going to constantly put pressure. Again, this is not a game I'm knocking for whatever reason for competition, but I'm just saying it's not necessarily what would facilitate playfulness. Someone that's not giving up position, you end up on bottom side control for the entirety of a role. Maybe they don't even advance, but they just hold you there, bottom side control. And uh, you're stuck. You're much smaller, and that's a very that could be a very stressful role. It could also feel like you really didn't learn much, which is kind of true. I mean, I'm, again, I'm not saying you don't you shouldn't be able to escape. You shouldn't learn side control escapes. I'm just saying that's not a playful mindset. Now, 
Compare that with a partner um, that you're more familiar with that has a playful mindset that is giving, I would essentially say, keeping a frenetic pace to the role. And now again, to look, go back to like the mammals. If you watch two of these meerkats grappling, they're like in a constant, they're in constant movement. Um, they're going from one position to another. And it looks like it may just be complete chaos, but there is some order to that. And so when I try to be playful, I like to keep things moving. And I often, sh I often have drills um, with my students where, uh, and, and again, people equate this with not exerting themselves. They, they equate this, first of all, with not like sweating, not getting a good workout, not pushing their cardiovascular limits. And I always will challenge them on that. I'll say, okay, so let's get you on the mat with a partner. And what I want both of you to do is don't stop moving for the entire five or eight or 10 minute round, literally. And again, I'm not saying don't be chaotic. That's not to equate with don't have control, but get positions, get submissions and move on to the next, get mount and then transition to a neon belly, transition to a sticky underhook, transition to Kimura control, and then to, you know, the back and a choking sequence. And then let your partner come up on top into your guard. They pass the guard and side control. You come up with an underhook into a single leg. You come on top, etc. Again, frenetic pace, constant movement. And what you'll find with this sort of playful behavior is it's essential, essentially a form of drilling that is not orderly. It's you know less controlled drilling. So you you get so many looks. As far as what you learned in that single role, you'll find you get, you, you'll end up in the same spots many times. You'll actually end up drilling maybe within a single role, the same technique two or three times, maybe with a little bit of variation. And so just, I, I think it's a feedback loop. If you have a partner that you're able to do that with, and oftentimes it will be a partner that you're more familiar with, but sometimes every once in a while, you'll find someone that you've never rolled with for. You bump fists and then you both are in the exact, you guys are in sync. You're in sync with that, with that training mode, that playful mode that allows you to do that. And that's wonderful when that happens. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's fantastic advice. And I agree with you about the importance of having good training partners. Um, it is hard to keep it playful if you have an opponent that is trying to win. And I, you see this a lot, especially at uh, lower belts, you know, new white belts who aren't really acclimatized to jujitsu yet tend to be so focused on winning because they are in that fight or flight mode. And honestly, they're scared and they don't know what to do. And so they go way more intense than they're supposed to, even though at the higher ranks, I mean, you see this as a black belt, right? A lot of the time, if people are a lower rank than you but they're not too much lower. Sometimes they will try to turn up the intensity a lot because they want to say they tapped out a black belt. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I find it's not so bad at my level because most brown belts are already pretty mature. And so you're not likely to see that. And below brown belt, I'm, I'm not too worried about them. But I remember when I was a blue belt, it was terrifying going to jujitsu because I wasn't really that good yet. I was only a blue belt, but all of these white belts wanted to kill me because they wanted to tap out a blue belt, right? <laughs> and, and so it was it was terrifying sometimes to go in there and know that all of these untrained lunatics were going to try to murder me. Again, at black belt, it, it's not as scary, but at blue belt, man, I, I distinctly remember this being on top of my mind for a while. Yeah, no, that'll keep you up at night. They essentially want your head up on their wall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know what I found has helped? I mean, 
this this is not a going to make you a better competitor necessarily. It's not going to make your jujitsu that much better, but it might help reset your your mindset back into that playful mode. If you can develop an awareness that this is happening in your head where you're scared of losing, your ego is caught up in it, you you're just unable to keep it playful anymore. My advice sometimes is throw the first round in the most embarrassing way possible. Which sounds kind of like maybe counterintuitive advice, but it's similar to that advice that how, hey, if you're worried about people making fun of you, laugh at yourself first because then it takes the sting out of it, right? And then no one else can do it to you if you've already kind of made fun of yourself. Mm. I found sometimes if you go into the mats and, and you've got that mindset where you're thinking like, I am terrified to lose today. I'm just not having fun right now. What I'll sometimes do is pick a partner that I probably should be able to beat. I'll give them a reasonable fight, but ultimately... My job is to let them win. And my job is to let them win convincingly and more importantly, with people watching. And then afterwards, I smile, I thank them, I tell them what they did right. If you've already walked into a gym like that and the first thing that happens is you lose badly, then you're not really afraid of losing anymore. The worst has already happened. You've seen what's happened. You've seen it's not a big deal. It's a lot easier then to spend the rest of the class doing jujitsu the right way, the fun way, rather than worrying about looking good or bad. So that's something that I would suggest. It's a little trick you can sometimes do if you're battling with this on the mats. I love that. Not recommended in competition. Yeah. Don't recommend it in competition. <laughs> Someone's going to come out and be like, Steve told me to do this. <laughs> no, so I, I 100% agree. And again, I, I have an asterisk there. I actually do, do sometimes uh, with higher level practitioners, you, it'll depend on my mood, but you, you, you know, they're the type that are really not going to be playful and you're going to end up in a control position where like I, there's certain competitors or training partners that I might go up against. And it's like, I've literally now held you in close guard for a five minute round. That's great. Again, for comp- competition, you know, fine tuning your ability to hold close guard and, and, you know, keep that strenuous pace and constantly attack is a real skill. But as far as fun, that's not fun, like literally holding a close guard for uh, uh, five to, th- and it's not fun for them either. And they're just being defensive and you're just, you know, not willing to open up your guard uh, because you're worried what they're going to do. Again, it comes down to what you're worried about. You're worried your guard's going to get opened. And then, you know, what happens is when they do open your guard in this situation, then they probably will pass and submit you because you had that like mental block versus like if you were had a playful mindset and opened your guard ahead of time you're going to be ahead um so that that can be a good mindset but so what i'll often do is with those type of people i'll just i'll just like let them put me in a pretty precarious position and if they submit me then they submit me and that's okay and i always find after that happens our next role or the end of that role will just be so much more chill because they also got they got oh great you you submitted me nice now can we can we keep doing jujitsu Exactly that mindset. The one asterisk I'd put um, with that, especially for newer practitioners, smaller practitioners, whenever I'm going training with someone I don't know really well or who's unfamiliar, especially if they're bigger than me, I really don't let up. I've just had too many injuries in, in doing that where I don't let up my defense. I'll play very defensive, especially if they're larger than me, because you, there are someone who's especially who's uncontrolled or unskilled can just fall on you and break a rib. And if you're playing and you're saying, well, I was playing, but now you're hurt. So I would say, you know, make sure you're safe, uh, especially with new partners. You may need to be defensive, especially if you're smaller. But once you get in sync with a person, if it's a familiar training partner, 
then it allows you. For, I mean, that's that's the reason why people can get so much better, uh, especially with you know leg attacks. It, and we saw this. We saw this when when um, the leg games first started becoming pervasive. How many injuries were there? Um, and then people that slowly got weeded out of gyms that were just hurting people. And eventually, people learn to play and and trust partners and and obviously you need to know finishing mechanics. That's really important to know finishing mechanics. But it's also just as important to allow yourself to be feel like you can be put in a really tough position and not have your partner break you. That is so important to have that trust with a partner. And I really do think that an integral part of play and having that playful mindset is that trust. Because if you can't trust your partner. Of course, it's on you to tap. That's true. Like people sometimes get that confused. Like, of course, it's up to you to say tap or tap. Um, but it's all, I also strongly believe there is an onus on a good training partner to be aware, aware of, you know, not hurting your partner and that that will allow for a playful mindset. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I like that suggestion of if you're unsure of, the safety level of your opponent to go into defense mode. I do this a lot. I'm a notorious turtle player. <laughs> so if I'm if I'm in there with some gigantic white belt and I'm thinking, man, I, I don't trust this person. I am not going to try some like fancy Delaheva sweep or anything where my legs might get entangled. Right. I am just going to curl up into a little ball and let them settle down for a bit. Because the, the problem with playing bottom guard is is very easy for the person on top to just go just go totally crazy like an absolute lunatic. But once you get them to a position like turtle, now what, right? You're going to have to slow down a little bit. And so I, I find that it allows you to kind of create a, both physically and uh, figuratively a speed bump that, that is hard for them to get over, right? So you can kind of force them to slow down that way. Preet Mikkelsen gets a lot of crap for his suggestions of kind of building this defense first game. And the feedback is always, well, you know, you're not going to win ADCC if you do that. I'm, and my advice is, Buddy, you're not going to win ADCC anyway. You're like an <laughs> exactly. You're a 40 year old accountant who trains at the gym. What business do you have saying what's going to work at ADCC? Right. The goal of systems like that is not to go off and win at the highest levels. The goal of systems like that is to keep people safe at the early levels when jujitsu is kind of more dangerous because your opponents are or training partners are less predictable, and to also give you some confidence at the defense level that you can use to build on top of. Uh, and ultimately, that's going to keep things more fun, right? If you're not terrified of getting injured all the time because you're not terrified of every role being a fight to the death, it's a lot easier to keep it fun. And that's going to make it easier for you to get past that white and blue belt stage. And then you can really start worrying about what is happening at the most elite levels, I think. So this is an area where maybe my advice kind of deviates from, from other people's. I'm not saying that you shouldn't study what's at the highest levels, but I'm saying that you shouldn't be so obsessive about it that you take the fun out of the sport for yourself. A hundred percent. It brings it back to what we were talking about earlier about, um, you know, dissing celebrities that are, are practicing and, and saying, well, that's not going to work in, in the, you know, they wouldn't be able to beat so-and-so or this is not going to work in ADCC. And it's like, come on, guy, like, are you gotta, that's not the goal. That's not the goal for most people. And again, I agree with you. It's like, I think the reason it is, the way it is, is because we're fairly unique to have a sport that has the highest level competitors often interacting with, whether through instructionals or in actual classes, as well as training with, you know, amateurs. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with amateur. I think amateur is a, 
is a word that gets a bad rap because an amateur is someone that can both love what they're doing uh, because it's not their livelihood is not dependent on it as well as fine tune and try to perfect what they're doing. Um, I think that's actually what the the root comes from for amateur. And so it's like, that's not a bad thing being an amateur and that that comprises most of our 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 sport. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's an important thing to understand is that, look, we're we are not all out there obsessively trying to chase gold medals at IBJJF Worlds. Now, a lot of people are. But even for those people, I think that having a playful mindset is going to help them stay more consistent and have more fun. I think that as I as I look at jujitsu now, if you were to ask me to build the, the pyramid of jujitsu essential concepts, keeping it playful is one of the most important things you can do. We talk a lot on this podcast about skill development and tricks for remembering things that you might otherwise forget. And all of that stuff is well and good. But none of that matters if you hate showing up to class and you're, you just don't want to go and you're not having fun. The, the single most important thing is that you have fun and that you can stay consistent because you're having fun. I think that's just so absolutely key in jujitsu. And I would say that I wouldn't even worry about trying to min-max your jujitsu game and try to study from the best instructors and, and build the most metagame. I wouldn't even worry about that unless you're having fun first. For me, that's the most important thing is the bedrock is to make sure you're enjoying the sport. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I mean, if you just think about all the people, all the training partners you've had that have burnt out and had left, obviously there's mitigating circumstances in everyone's life. Could be having kids, it could be whatever reason. But I've found, you know, for whatever reason, the people that don't come back, the people that just burn out and never come back, that you see it at the end. They just weren't enjoying it. And so when they do think about coming back, they're not going to because it's not something that they should be doing if they're not, again, if they're not enjoying it. That's And as, we, as we've said before, if you are having fun, everything will come after that. Your learning capacity will increase. Um, you're going to be more consistent. And I, I do believe in the end, your technique will also become sharper. Well, hey, let's talk about leadership here. So if we all agree that jujitsu has to be fun, part of that, of course, comes from yourself and your own mindset. Part of that, as you wisely mentioned earlier, comes from your training partners. But a big part of that comes from the culture of the gym that you train at. And that's going to be dictated top down. Yes. If you want to find a gym full of amazing training partners, the best way to do that is to find an instructor who cultivates a gym that draws in and re retains those amazing training partners. There's a lot of gyms run by assholes filled with assholes. Uh, true. And you're probably going to be miserable training there. So if you're the person at the head of the class or if you're the business owner, what can you do to help build that culture of fun to help make your students more engaged and retain them longer and just ultimately improve the quality of their lives more? Yeah, I think culture is so, so important. And I think there's reasons why we have we've had either assholes asshole cultures as well as pretty much the antithesis to fun i mean it's kind of we don't we don't get too far into it but like the origins of jujitsu was you know for combat sports and for you know having challenge matches and like that of course you're not you're not going to be facilitating a fun environment but that's not what it is now guys uh, for most people and what it is, is, you know, people around the world that are, have found uh, this activity that they love, that they're becoming addicted to, they want to be able to do this in the long term. And so, yeah, you finding a, a gym, a culture, a group 
uh, that you really fit in with and that you're going to be able to play with is is so, so important. For me, the number one thing to facilitate that culture is doing by example. And I think that's true with so many things. It's like what, you know, I have young kids like you, Steve, and what I've often heard and found in practice is you can tell your kid a thousand times not to do something or to do something, and they may or may not listen to you, but what they do listen to and what they do pay attention to is what you do. And they very quickly mimic those behaviors. So it's so much more important to lead by example than to say the same thing over and over. The same goes with students. You can say, don't do that. Don't do that. Um, have fun, play, flow. It's like, what there people are like, what does that mean, man? Like, I don't really, you know, that doesn't mean anything to me. That's not getting through. But then if they watch you, they watch how you conduct yourself. Are you treating people with respect? Are you having fun? Are you making jokes? Are you joking around? Are you actually in your actual roles as a coach? Are you enjoying yourself? They, people know. People, people are, we're, humans are so good as social lie detectors that people know the truth. Are, are you really enjoying this? Are you a coach that's just sitting on the sidelines? Again, I understand certain coaches are not going to train all the time. The students, that's your own thing. You may be injured, whatever. But are you just on there on your phone and not paying attention? Are you totally detached? Are you in Are you in it and are you enjoying yourself? Whether it be rolling on your own and showing that or are you enjoying the teaching? Are you having fun as a teacher? Are you willing, like something I really like doing myself, and this is like for selfish reasons, but I think it works, is, you know, show when I'm not right. Like if I'm not right about something, if someone else has something to teach me, um, whether it's like a D1 wrestler or a judoka or whatever, another jujitsu player, I truly want to learn if it's something that I don't know. And I think people, again, they can see that in you. And so I think that's really the number, the number one thing for creating a culture uh, that, that facilitates play. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Um, emotional contagion is a real thing, right? Uh, and especially from the top down, the culture and the tone that's set by the leaders in the community, that is going to be a pattern that gets duplicated underneath them. Of course, a big part of that also, and the harder part, maybe a topic for another day, is enforcing that culture. So when you've got people in there who violate your culture, how do you remove them? That's a, a huge problem, right? You you can't be tolerant of the people who are violating your culture. So yeah, as a leader, that's who you want to look to if you want to assess a gym. If you walk into a gym and the gym owner or head instructor is sociable and is having fun and is engaging their students, that's probably a good sign that you're going to find a room full of good people to train with. Yeah, no, and that you're right. That is another topic as far as people that are are really outliers to the culture and causing problems. And I know I've just seen situations that have been handled well, and then situations that have really have not been handled well. And that's, I, I can't say I'm an expert in that either. Well, hey, something that we can talk about here, I want to make sure we get a chance, Combat Codes. Tell me about the book here. Oh yeah, sure. Well, I have a, I have a copy here, but this is an audio podcast, so you can just hear hear the pages of the book flipping. <laughs> this is actually my my debut. I mean, as I said, I've I've written for my whole life. I I most recently um for as far as magazines uh wrote for a Rolling Stone piece about Anthony Bourdain called The Lost Diary of Anthony Bourdain. It's all about jiu-jitsu. Um so for sure check that out. But my my debut science fiction novel is called The Combat Codes and it's pretty much a love letter to jiu-jitsu. It's in bookstores 
across the US and UK now. So if you go to your Barnes and Nobles, or if you're in the UK, if you go to uh, Waterstones, you should be able to pick one up. Uh, indie bookstores, some of them, most should have it. If they don't, you should tell them to order it, by the way. Um, you can, of course, find it online. But the book is about a world where wars have been replaced with single combat between champions and it's unarmed combat. So of course, mixed martial arts, but more specifically jujitsu and judo and wrestling are at the forefront given I'm a grappler. I mean, I've done Muay Thai and I I love mixed martial arts as well. So, you know, that's all a big part of it. Um, And it follows two primary characters. One is like this grizzled, disillusioned champion who's kind of, uh, you know, fallen out of grace and he's, he's drinking far too much. And he's disillusioned with the system. You know, there's a system where they find these champions. You can imagine a nation where, like the Olympics, but the stakes are far far higher where whoever wins a certain fight, is it's going to, you know, determine land allocation. It's going to determine resources. It's going to determine whether people have food on their plates. So can you imagine what nations would put behind their fighters and what they would put into them as well? if that were happening. And so he's disillusioned with the system. And then the other character is a kind of a mysterious boy, uh, a teenage boy who's fighting in these like um, underground slave circles. And of course, their two paths intersect. Um, you have kind of a lone wolf and cub um, relationship between them. And um, there's a, comp- a martial arts academy. It's kind of, uh, I've, I've likened it to like um, Harry Potter, but instead of magic, it has mixed martial arts. now hey you know what i want and you tell me if you've got this here i am hoping as a jujitsu practitioner myself that in the fight scenes you explain the grappling in just a ludicrous and unnecessary level of detail (laughs) like i'm hoping i'm hoping there's a fight scene and you spend five pages just explaining the mechanics of an armbar can you confirm for me that that's in the book steve well let me well a few things there so unfortunately, I did have a few like that, but my editors were like, well, you realize regular people are going to, are we're going to try to have regular people read this. But that being said, I do treat martial arts like a magic system. So this is, might get a little nerdy for those that are not familiar with like fantasy sci-fi books, but you might have a magic system with all these words that you don't know, like magic spells. So I essentially treat like Kimura or like, uh, you know, a, a rear naked choke or um, a leg kick as like a magic system. And there's actually rings um, in this book that the, the, the rings that the fighters um, compete in will affect them in different ways. Like, so there might be one that makes you like super angry, or maybe that's one that makes you like really cre- feel like you're really creative, <laughs> even though you might not be like try all sorts of new things. So that's like kind of the magic system in the backdrop. But um, there are um, epigraphs, which are, are the, the sections before chapters that have like little historical context from from what's called the actual combat codes which are like the set of ancient texts that dictate the warrior class dictate their uh code of honor kind of like bushido with the samurai so we have epigraphs that come directly from the quote-unquote combat codes and those contain some of those contain technique sections and um you know there might be one that actually shows how to how to do a proper triangle or there may be one that shows like um the cadence of leg kicks going back and forth or um, how to do a good mount, like a Hodger Gracie style mount. And I can't, I did certainly take a lot from my heroes. And actually two uh, fighters that really love the combat codes in it and were one, I think my, my editor said, this is the first time we're on the back of the book. We have blurbs from a bunch of authors and, and as you would expect, like literary people 
and then we have fighters. <laughs> so like we have a we have quotes from like Ryan Hall and Kenny Florian on the back of the book because uh, you know that's the crossover. <laughs> well, hey, if people want to pick up the book or if they want to connect with you, how can they go about doing that? Yeah, so I'm on social media as Combat Codes under most of the different platforms. It's Instagram and um, Facebook and Twitter. And uh, the Combat Codes uh, is readily available in, as I said, most uh, should be most bookstores in the US and UK. If you find a bookstore that doesn't have it, you can have them order it. Libraries in the US. I don't know about the UK as far as libraries. I don't really know how the library system works there, but it should be in most libraries in the US. It's I know a lot of um, you know, jujitsu folks and MMA folks um, like audiobooks. Um, not to say that they don't read, <laughs> but audiobooks are great and it, it's it's available on Audible as well. And then if you read on Kindle, um, it's available there as well. Awesome. Amazing. Well, as I always do, I'll put links to all of those in the show notes just to make it easy for people to connect with you or to pick up the book. I'll also put a link to all of our stuff. Everyone probably knows BJJMentalModels.com is where everything lives. Of course, you're getting close to 250 episodes of this podcast. The goal here is always to make every episode educational and timeless. So my hope is if you're like a lot of people, you can go back to episode one and pick up stuff that's going to help your game. Beyond that, we've also got an awesome newsletter that we send out every week. It's completely free. You'll get the show notes for the podcast if you sign up there, as well as a thought piece that we send out every week and some exclusive freebies and other offers that we give out. So you can unsubscribe at any time if you don't like it. The other thing, too, of course, that floats the boat here is BJJ Mental Models Premium. For those who don't know, it's a subscription service that gives you a whole bunch of stuff. First thing you're going to get is our entire audio course library. There's a ton of courses in there on things like mindset strategy uh, and how to handle yourself during a competition. If this episode resonated with you and you're struggling with that aspect of keeping it playful and maintaining your enjoyment of the sport, we've got some amazing thought pieces there on premium from uh, some of the best coaches and competitors in the world explaining their method. So if this episode resonated with you, there's a lot of deep stuff on there that will probably help. You'll also get rolling reviews from our awesome Black Belt review team. We've got some amazing reviewers, including Marco Ciccarelli and Brianna St. Marie. So if you want to have athletes of that caliber break down your footage, just sign up there. We're also building out a an ever-growing library of new premium podcasts. Uh, we've got one with uh, Jake Luigi from Less Impressed, More Involved, the super popular YouTube channel. He does a podcast there for us on premium, and we're always adding more stuff there as well, plus access to our awesome community. So please do consider it if you haven't already. You can check out premium at bjjmentalmodels.com, and I'll put a link in the show notes as well. There's a week free trial, so there's no risk to giving it a shot. So I really do appreciate everyone who signs up there. So please do consider it if you haven't already. But Alexander, man, thanks so much for coming by. This was a fun one. Really appreciated it. And it's a topic that resonates with me very closely. So I'm glad we were able to have this chat. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on, Steve. Thank you. It's been a blast. You too, man. Thanks a lot. Thanks to the listeners as well. Truly appreciate the time every week. And we'll talk to you soon. 